Hi, and welcome to Bread. Our current series is on the book of Genesis. It's uh, going back to the start, not because that's where we're heading, but it is where we've come from, spiritually and cosmically, if not historically. The Bible is clear. We've left Eden. We're not going back. Instead, we're heading for heaven, which is not some fluffy, cloud, harp playing, white sheet wearing place up in the sky. It's a glorious city of wonder and abundance and redemption here on earth and forever into eternity. Heaven is not Eden, but it does share many of its defining characteristics. So we're going back to the start, not to return, but to see where we've come from so that we might know better where we're going and how to get there. Enjoy. Today we're going to talk about um, a second version of uh, the creation narrative in chapter 2 in Genesis. And it's a very earthy one. It paints a pretty simple picture of a God who's not at all distant, but close enough to actually get down in the dirt and breathe his breath into our nostrils. It's pretty intense if you think about it. Someone who would walk with us and talk with us in the garden and um, take good care of us through things like beauty and also good food, which I love, and giving us an earth that's insanely gorgeous, filled with things like trees and rivers, and we'll talk about that today. So when I was in college um, many, many years ago, I studied abroad my sophomore year, and before I left, my, uh, my mentor at the time, she's a gal named Kristen, <clears throat> right before I left, she ripped a page from a poetry book, and she gave me a page from it, and basically was like, you're going to need this when you study abroad. She knew me very well. And that uh, page was from a, ger a German poet named Rainer Maria Rilke. Any Rilke lovers out there? All right, I see a couple of little introverted hands. All right. And I hung that poem um, up on every cork board that I had. I don't know why university just is synonymous with cork boards. Um, but I want to share it with you because I think it has something to do with what we're going to talk about today. Now, if you're a visual person, feel free to read along. If you're not, just close your eyes and listen, okay? God speaks to us each as he makes us then walks with us silently walks with us silently out of the night these are the words we dimly hear you sent out beyond your recall go to the limits of your longing embody me flare up like a flame and make big shadows i can move in let everything happen to you beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. It's from the Book of Hours. This poem encapsulates a lot of the same messages that Genesis 2 gives us about the kind of God that creates the world who walks with us after he makes us and sends us out 
and says, make big shadows that I can move in. So let's take a look at Genesis 2 together, shall we? We're going to do this in three parts. Um, I won't be able to cover everything. I'm going to go over about nine verses or so. But let's look at uh, Genesis 2, verses 5 to 7. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. So Genesis 2 is about creation from the bottom up. It's mega earthy, while chapter 1, as we've heard in the last couple weeks, chapter 1 is like booming and top down, starting with God existing outside of time and speaking creation into being. It's like this cosmic creation story. Well, chapter 2 is local instead of cosmic. It's on the ground with us. Read together, putting these two alongside of each other, they're juxtaposed, and we're really meant to ask some questions about them to go deeper. And really, that's how oral histories work. Similar but different stories get passed along and it was probably sung about in parts, remembered over family dinners, and eventually someone wrote it down. So here we are. We have no one around on the earth. No one's working the ground yet. Not even the plants are working. Nothing's happening. There's no greenery, no rain. It's kind of like Los Angeles through most of the year. <laughs> Pretty light brown is the color. <clears throat> I think we're meant to imagine the dust and dirt. I don't know if you've ever driven through a dust bowl on the way to Vegas or anywhere like that, but you can imagine the swirls in the air of the dust. And God uses that dust from the ground to form a human, which is what the word Adam or Adam means in Hebrew. And then he breathes into his nostrils the very breath of life. The language makes God, um, in the Hebrew, it makes the, langu the language makes God sound like a potter, someone who creates out of clay. The language is like a craftsman. Um, it's like God has to get dirty in order to make something good. Then God plants a garden east of Eden and plops the human there. And in this Genesis 2 account, God's also a gardener. It's a different perspective from the story in Genesis 1, like I mentioned, where God is like this cosmic universe builder, existing before all time with a booming voice that can speak things into being. Genesis 2 shows us God as this earthy gardener down in the dirt with all of us, down in the dirt with humanity. And he's both of these things at the same time. He's both cosmic and grand and beyond what we can ever imagine, able to speak things into being with his very word. And he's also down in the dirt with us, which is what Jesus shows us um, in the New Testament. So speaking of Jesus, I want to fast forward for a moment. <clears throat> speaking of God as a gardener. 
Do you guys remember that one resurrection story in the Gospels? Um, it's in the Gospel of John, where um, it's, it's particular. Mary is um, outside the tomb. Jesus has been in the tomb for three days. And I'll recap it for you. She's outside of the tomb crying. She's weeping. And she's bending over. She's looking into the tomb. And she's like, where is Jesus? Why is he not here? And she's, she's weeping. And there's two angels, it says in white, standing where Jesus' body had been. And they ask her, woman, why are you crying? And she says, they've taken my Lord away. And I don't know where they put him. And it says, at this, she turns around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. And he asks her the same thing. Woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And it says, thinking he was the gardener, she says to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And then it says, Jesus looks at her and says, Mary. And she knows it's him. I love this story because it shows us we, we wouldn't expect God to be down in the dirt looking like a gardener. We wouldn't expect him that way, right? Even Mary didn't recognize Jesus, wasn't expecting him to look like a gardener. So let's zoom back to Genesis. I think, honestly, this story is super adorable um, as we think about the resurrection story too. Who would expect the God of the universe to look like a gardener. Let's pick back up with verses 8 and 9. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden there were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, I want to slow down for a second and get, us, get into some nerdy language bits. Is anybody interested in nerdy language bits? Hopefully someone other than me. You should know, <clears throat> this is, I think, significant, um, a couple of things. You should know that in Hebrew, east in Eden rhymes really nicely. It goes like this, Eden Mikedem. Two beats, then three. Say it with me, Eden Mikedem. Did you know that in the early chapters of Genesis, we have some really great puns and wordplay in Hebrew, and you wouldn't notice it unless you were reading the early Hebrew or someone told you. But I think it's worth noting because there are these tiny details of art and artistry in Genesis in particular that are really lovely and I think are there for a reason, especially if you love words and the music of language like I do. Okay, here's a couple of other examples. <clears throat> in Genesis 1-2, um, in the Hebrew, we have two words that rhyme really nicely to describe the earth being formless and empty. And those words are tohu vabohu. Now, the earth was tohu vabohu, it says in Hebrew. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Say that with me. Tohu vabohu. Eden Mikeden. It kind of sounds like a heartbeat, right? Two beats and then another three beats. To me, this is not, um, this, isn't, this didn't just happen um, as a chance. Like, this was actually written into the text for a reason. 
hey, maybe the early writers of Genesis were the first hip-hop artists. There's a lot of rhythm in there. The point is that the wordplay and the, the puns, they're actually puns in Hebrew, they might be art for art's sake in the text, but it also reminds us of this thing we have to keep in, our, in the back of our mind when we're reading things like Genesis, and that's that rhythm and rhyme helped the people of God remember these stories because they were in their minds for hundreds of years before they were written down. And this stuff actually helped them remember. I don't know about you, but I can remember a song that was playing when I was like five, even though I haven't sung it in years and years and years. Because often there's, there's rhythm and rhyme to it, right? I'm sure I'm not the only one. Okay, one last example. In Genesis 2, which is where we are today, it says the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. In the Hebrew, we have um, Adam, or Adam, and Adama. And Adam, or Adam, means man, or human, and Adama means ground. So we have the Lord God forming Adam from the Adama. It's as if we're supposed to remember that humanity and the earth are totally connected. It's also as if art and beauty are woven into our creation story for a, a good reason. Maybe that's because beauty will save the world, which is one thing I think. I'm gonna tell you a quick story. This is an um, illustration. I'll need a photo put up on the slide of the paints. This was taken yesterday. So yesterday, um, I had to laugh. I was looking after um, babysitting my three nieces and nephew to give their mom a break. And um, they were painting rocks outside. That's the thing that they wanted to do. And they were painting these rocks really intensely, like it was the most important thing they had ever done. And I'm not sure exactly why we did this, but the, the paint was not really water soluble. I think it's because you needed to have like oil-based paint in order to, for it to stick to the rocks. Anyway, this went on, to, went for, we, this went on for hours and at one point, the littlest one, um, Eden, which is, that's cute that that's her name, we're talking about Eden today, had the entirety of her arms and legs, I don't know, I like turned around for a second and then I turned back around and all of her arms and legs were, were painted in this thick green paint, thick green paint. And it was like she was wearing a paint sweater like Jolly Green Giant. You guys remember those commercials? So I put them in the bathtub and the water immediately turns like green and it's just, it's green. I'm not sure if they're getting clean, but we're trying to get the paint off. But come on, how much fun does this look like, right? So next thing you know, then they transition from the painting of the rocks to mud pies. You guys remember doing this as a kid? So they kept having me turn on the water hose more and more um, so that they can make more mud, so they can make more mud pies. They called it um, mud meat. They're like, Nelly, turn on the water, we want more mud meat. It was an absolute disaster of a mess. It took forever to clean up. But what it did make me think of is how drawn children are to the dirt and just how naturally they're connected to it. It's like magnets, kids and dirt, kids and the earth. They're like magnetized to it. And I don't think that this is a coincidence. I think that oftentimes kids are most connected 
to just the simple things of God. I think kids know that we come from the earth and that we're inextricably linked with it. Genesis 2 shows us a God who's not afraid to get down in that dirt with us. This is a God who has to breathe his very spirit, his very breath into us to give us the fullest life possible. That's why, it's one of the reasons why at the end of every service we have at Bread, we invite people up to get prayer because we really believe that we need the very breath of God, the spirit of the living God to breathe into us, to renew us, to heal us, and to give us something hopeful, to give us something beautiful in that moment. So let's return to this story. So just like the kids showed me, and by the way, I woke up this morning kind of regretting that I didn't get into the mud with them, or they kept asking me, Nellie, do you want to paint a rock with us? And I kept going, I don't really want to get dirty. But I looked back and thought, I really missed out on some like very simple fun. You know what I mean? So I kind of regret that. Just like the kids show us that they're magnetically drawn to the dirt and the mud for fun, one takeaway, I think, from Genesis 2 is that we're inextricably linked to the earth. Like, we are so connected with the land. But sadly, for most of us, particularly in the U.S. and particularly in cities, since we're living in the shadow of the post-industrial revolution, global capitalism, we, you know, we're mostly formed as a culture. We're like discipled into being consumers, unfortunately. That's the thing that most of us are primarily. And it takes a lot of work to work ourselves out of that sort of identity. And as consumers, we've mostly consumed the earth. We haven't cared for it. And yet, we know there's a limit and there's a consequence to that. And Sadly, we are seeing that even in our daily lives, the consequences of climate change, intense climate change. So I want to give a plug right here. Um, If you want to think more deeply about this, go and listen to Tavia's song, Glacier. She just released it in the last month. It's on all the iTunes and the Spotify's. It's called Glacier. Listening to that song, I listened to it for the first time this past month, it really made me start apologizing to God for how poorly I've treated the earth. I'm not kidding. There's been a couple times in my life where different poets, particularly black poets, different songs have moved me to repentance in a way that nothing else has, and this is one of those moments. So I'd really encourage you to go and listen to that song. Because if we really believe as followers of Jesus, if we really believe that God created the earth, shouldn't we be the people most known for advocating and protecting it? And sadly, I'm indicting myself here. That's not what we're known for. Okay, let's hop back into the Genesis story as we start to wrap this up. What's this all about Eden? Where was it anyway? Why does it matter? Well, what's important is not so much the topography or geography of Eden, although we could debate that for a long time, and many people have, but rather what Eden symbolizes. One uh, translation, the Septuagint, calls Eden a paradise of luxury. 
And in Hebrew and in other North Semitic languages, like the grandmamas of Hebrew in terms of language, the root of that word comes up in all these different places. It means things like rich food, luxurious clothing, even sexual pleasure, and intense spiritual joy. All these things are associated with that word Eden. Eden was a space where luxury and pleasure were synonymous and had, beauty had no limit. It contained this garden where God himself walked with humanity. And since this story was written down, as I've said, in, in the fallout of Israel's exile in Babylon, we can safely assume that it was also a bit of a war of words as they were writing down things about this garden, this symbolic garden. We can safely assume that they were sort of comparing it to Babylon's very famous hanging gardens, one of the seven wonders of the world, um, the one even Miss Taylor Swift sang about in her most recent album, Evermore, when she says, and I hang from your lips like the gardens of Babylon. It's from Cowboy Like Me. It's a good song. So similar to Babylon's famed gardens, the garden in Eden was a place of, uh, it was a place of pleasure and luxurious royal beauty where God walked with humans. Unlike Babylon's garden, Eden was where Israel's God actually hung out, which would have been kind of a scandal, not kind of, a definite scandal to ancient ears, the fact that God would have been hanging out with humans in this garden. As Genesis 2 says, he actually got down in the dirt and breathed life into all of humanity. And as we go along in this series, you'll hear more about, uh, as we progress this story, the importance of God's relationship with humans in the garden and what that all means. So why does this story matter to us? Why would we even bother to teach it? Why are we talking about it? Well, one big reason is that this Eden is like a mirror image of where all humanity is headed. When Jesus finally comes and restores the earth once and for all. You know, we're calling this series Back to the Start, but um, part of that is remembering where we're going, where we're headed. We aren't headed back to Eden. We're not headed back into the Garden of Eden. But we are headed towards an earth that is restored and renewed by God himself, by Jesus, when he will finally set all things right. That's why we all have this longing in our heart. We know things aren't quite right yet. We feel the tension of all that God still needs to set right. That's why, as Christians, we're not just trying to, like, get into heaven or escape the earth and leave it destroyed in our warpath. We are invited to partner with God to bring renewal and restoration to all things. So in other parts of the Bible, we're told of this time and place that we're all looking towards when actually humans and animals, too, will live in, like, perfect harmony. This is kind of trippy. Um, there will be no more violence or war or pain. And this is the end story of the world that we're hoping for 
and we are expecting. This is just one of many places where you can see this, but this is in Isaiah 11. If you could bring it up on the slide, and I'll just read it. The wolf will live with the lamb. Those are two very different animals. <laughs> the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child. There's this picture of the child being safe in the midst of these predators. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be covered with the knowledge of the Lord as, wa as waters cover the sea. It says, in that day, the root of Jesse, who we know is Jesus, this was written a couple hundred years before Jesus ever came to the earth, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as the banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. So the Lord God made all these trees grow out of the ground in the Genesis narrative, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden, there's this tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So out of the ground, God, this gardener type God, causes green stuff to grow. Specifically, trees, and I love God is a good God, guys. I'm not sure if you grew up believing something different. For some of us, this is actually something we have to unlearn. Um, it's very easy to make the assumption that God is mad at us or he's generally disappointed with us or annoyed with us. We get a very different picture in Genesis Generous who wants us to enjoy things, who wants us to actually experience beauty and eat good food. Come on. He personally cares about these things. Then we have this mystical tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll get to that tree in a week or two. I'm not going to talk much about it. And then following these verses, we don't have a ton of time to talk through all of the details, but we get uh, a description of four very specific rivers, two of which we know of and two we kind of don't really know where they are. We have a lot of guesses about it. But I'm going to summarize why I think they matter talks about these four rivers that are flowing out from Eden, from the garden. And honestly, the symbolism of rivers in general bring life and healing all throughout the Bible. This picture of a river in particular paints a picture of an experience with God, actually a tangible place that's like a metaphor for what it's like to experience God's presence to be close to him. So the idea is that his presence, his being with us, and his spirit flows like a river flows. It's tangible and feeds us the same way a river feeds the earth and brings healing. Now for ancient Israel, they'd be thinking, when you're talking about rivers in general, the, the river that they would probably think of the most was most likely the Nile, because it was such a massive, important river for that whole region. It really brought 
fertility to the ground for miles and miles and miles. And it was well known that it would rise up and then go back down. But there's many places in the Bible where uh, the picture of a river, a symbolic river, comes up. And it continues to speak of the same thing that the Nile would do in terms of feeding the ground. So in Psalm 46, we have this description. It says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. I love this part. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. This is the kind of God that we worship. This is what we look for. This is what we wait for. We wait for God to come and make all things right, where there'll be no more war, there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more sorrow or death. And one last example. After Jesus' resurrection, John, on a Greek island called Patmos, gets this crazy revelation and writes it down. We had a a, series on, a short series on Revelation not that long ago. And in that revelation, he writes of seeing this vision of the end of time when Jesus will make everything new. And what's one or two things in this vision? There's lots of things, but one of the more poignant images in Revelation is of a river and a tree, just like we see in Genesis 2. In Revelation 22, it says this, that he saw a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, Jesus. And on its banks, on the banks of the river, the tree of life, whose leaves were, get this, for the healing of the nations. So we get this picture of the same sort of river and trees that we see in Eden in Genesis 2, at the end of time, when Jesus comes to make all things right, and we get this picture of the river of life, like um, a flowing stream that gives life to everything around it, and God himself healing the nations through the fruit of this tree of life. So as we wrap things up here, I'd love to bring the, the band back up uh, for one more song. And we're going to spend some time worshiping God, thanking him for being who he is. And in the meantime, I have a couple questions for us, for um, sort of takeaways from this, things to think about. First, I want to, um, as the band comes up, I want to leave you with this painting by Sam, Sam Francis. This, um, I ran into this painting years ago in Paris. It's at the Museum Pompidou. And you can, I don't know if you can see the security guard for scale of how big this painting is. It's pretty insane. Um, and then if we go to the next slide, this is kind of a bit better picture of it. It's called In Vast Blueness, I think, or In Lovely Blueness. I always get it wrong. In Lovely Blueness. And I leave you with this painting to um, just kind of meditate on what this river might mean for you in your life. Because the, the picture of this blue really makes me think of um, God's presence and this river of his presence, just looking at it. I have this um, 
I don't know how to explain this. When I am feeling very stressed and anxious, and I need to just imagine God being with me, most of the time when I close my eyes and I say, come Holy Spirit or Lord be with me, I picture myself in a body of water and Jesus with me, just like swimming, which is funny because I'm not really a great swimmer. I was just telling Seth about this, how I usually panic in the water and accidentally breathe in water, which is not a good thing to do. But in this scene, I am completely at rest, and it really, in my mind's eye, allows me to really sense God's presence with me. So maybe as you look at this painting, you can start to think about the beauty in Eden and all that God invites us into in this life in experiencing more beauty and experiencing more of who he is. So for some of us, maybe, and I'm going to end up, I'm going to end here, maybe the number one thing that you could do in response to this message, it could be as simple as just taking some time this week and just go and be in nature. Take your shoes off, touch the dirt, maybe make some mud pies, some mud meat. Go make some messes. Just experience the beauty of nature. Promise me you'll leave your phone in your car. And ask the Holy Spirit to go with you. Or maybe, maybe you need to ask God, like I do, maybe you can ask, how can I better take care of this earth that you've given us? We're so inextricably linked to it. How could we take that more seriously? Maybe we could ask each other this this week to get some ideas. I started to look into this this week. One idea I had was like, oh, maybe I'll get some eco-friendly toilet paper. Y'all, the toilet paper I found was $60 for 24 rolls. I'm not going to do that, but we will find some other ideas. (laughs) Or maybe, maybe you need the freedom and boldness to pursue your craft. I know we have a lot of artists and writers in the place. Maybe you need the freedom to pursue that, remembering that it's God's design since Eden to pursue beauty for the sake of beauty because it represents the very person of who God is. Maybe you need to be able to just be in that luxury, knowing that beauty and pleasure and art is healing. So my last thought for us as um, we're about to worship and spend some time is this. We'd love to pray for you, by the way, at the end. Um, And in particular, if this resonates, if this part resonates with you. I want you to think about this. If the river, if the rivers in Eden are meant to make us curious for more of God's presence and more of God's nearness, if that's meant to paint a picture of this place of plenty, of beauty, of the luxury of peace and God's closeness, of perfect love that drives out all fear, where are you in 
relation to that river? If the river is God's presence, are you on the bank? Are you sort of watching others? Are you feeling left out? Are you running straight in like a kid with your clothes on? And if you're on the bank, what is the resistance? What's keeping you from just diving in, from getting to know God a bit more? So why don't you stand with me, and um, I'm going to pray to close us out.